The Met is full of busted heads. In the Egyptian wing, there's the likeness of Pharaoh Ptolemy II carved from dark sandstone around 250 BC, which is missing its right eye and most of its nose. There's the fragmentary marble head of a Roman girl, dating from sometime around the year 150 AD. The right third of her face is missing as well. My personal favorite is called Fragmentary Colossal Head of a Youth, a piece of Greek statuary from the 2nd century BC that's on loan from the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. The scale of it is part of what draws you in. It's colossal, like three times the size of a normal noggin, but what makes this statue so captivating is what is not there. Picture a diagonal line that runs from just below this youth's left eye to the middle of his right cheek. Everything above that is missing. So you see a dimpled chin, a very beefy neck, most of his nose, the curls of his chin-length hair, and these quite extraordinary lips with a well-defined cupid's bow. You could see someone bringing this statue to their dermatologist as a reference for lip fillers. It's a beautiful face, at least what you can see of it, and it's a beautiful statue, clearly the work of a master artist. And there's something very poignant about contrasting that smooth marble beauty of youthfulness with the violence of its destruction, the ease with which the top half of his face has just been cleaved away. If you Google fragmentary colossal head of a youth, you'll see plenty of photos of this statue in situ at the Met, but you'll also see a lot of tattoos. There's something about this piece of art that makes people want to commemorate it on their bodies permanently. Like this one guy, Jeremy West, who, according to his Twitter profile, works in publishing and likes theater. He looks young, like 30. He got his fragmentary colossal head of a youth tattoo after undergoing surgery for cancer. He tweeted that he wanted a tattoo that stood for survival. The youth of the figure remains, even through visual damage. It's just a bit more fragmentary now than before. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. I'm Damon Davis. I describe myself as a post-disciplinary artist, meaning I don't really concentrate on a certain medium. I'm just um, using whatever's at my disposal to tell stories. So I'm trying to move past the idea of an artist based in a discipline or in a medium. And you have an upcoming solo exhibition at MoCA Detroit. Yes, that is correct. Maybe you would tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, the Filling in the Crack show, it opens June 4th at uh, MoCA Detroit. This body of work I've been working on since 2019 um, called Cracks, and it's, it's, ba it's basically three-dimensional self-portraits. Uh, myself uh, made a concrete. These three-dimensional self-portraits are mostly busts, depicting Damon from the shoulders up, although there is one piece that is just his head lying on its side. In all of the sculptures that make up the series, Damon's head, cast in concrete, is broken or chipped away or cracked open in some way. In one sculpture, his head is bisected just like in fragmentary colossal head of a youth, so you can see his shoulders, his neck, his upturned chin, lips, nose, and earlobes. But the top half of his head has been cut away, and in its place stand a dozen or so crystals, pieces of quartz in black and brown and white, growing out of his head like flora. I started making this work after my mother passed in 2019, and I wanted, um, it was, one, it was part like therapy, um, mostly therapy, 
on a, on a personal level. It's the most personal work I, I think I've done thus far. And it was a, it's just exploring grief, uh, loss, and how masculinity interacts with that and what grief is supposed to look like and what grief actually looks like in human beings with the public-facing persona that men are supposed to keep up in grief or in worry or in sadness or in anxiety, the idea that we're not supposed to have any emotions. It's hurting us, I, I truly believe, by not being able to be full human beings. And so uh, when I was thinking about that work, I was just like, what is the hardest thing I could think of? It is like the street itself. So I started making these pieces out of concrete and ideas that it's falling apart or breaking apart may reveal something more precious and more strong or something more powerful underneath what that armor looks like or underneath that concrete. A lot of these works are these different self-portraits of me. And I'm, I'm speaking abstractly and metaphorically and, and, and sometimes quite blatantly to what grief looks like for me as a black man and what I think it actually looked like instead of what it should look like, you know? I'm sorry to hear about your mom. Yeah, that's, that's another thing that everybody is going to go at some point, you know? So we shouldn't be as afraid or as, um, you know, we always running away from the idea of death. And, and everybody born thinks that they're going to be the first person not to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. We do everything in our power to, to ignore it, run away from it. But it's, it's a part of life, you know? And I think if we taught our children that it, it wouldn't be as hard when, when you leave, you know what I mean? Your kids would be prepared for it. And, and in that, there's freedom in the idea of finality or, or just in, in things being transient. I don't know. The human brain wants to make everything last forever and, and outlast, and it does. Nothing does. Nothing does. Some of the busts in Damon's Crack series feature gnarled and knotted roots that grow up and out of his head. He writes, The roots growing from the head speak to the foundations in our lives. The roots of how our personalities are formed, family, environment, culture. At the point those things don't serve us anymore is when we have to make a choice about who we want to be and where we want to go. So can you tell me a little bit about the materials that you chose to incorporate into these busts and and why you chose those specifically? Yeah, so I, I was trying to use organic material, you know, like things that would grow, you know, like things that grow from the earth. And things that um, that change over time too. Um, and each one had a specific uh, meaning. Like I, I really like gemstones because they get formed in the earth and they have a beauty to them. It's also it's like everything is part metaphorical, but some of it is like it's aesthetically pleasing. I'm an artist, and I want to I want to put more beauty into the world. So I picked these stones that also would stop you and make you look at them to a degree. You know what I'm saying? And some of them. Like the quartz, I was looking up birthstones, I was looking up stuff like that. And so I was using those in certain degrees. But it, the, the main science behind the, the stones is that like concrete is one, it's a shell, but like on the inside, there's something more precious and something that's more beautiful. And if you let some of that shit down, you know, let some of the your guard down, then it may be something that's more valuable and harder underneath, stronger than that shit that's on the surface. Hi, is this Cody? It is, yeah. Hi, this is Mackenzie. You are a professional watch guy, is that right? Yeah, my name is Cody, and I manage the Brooklyn Watch Shop and the Chelsea Watch Shop. 
and we do repairs from quartz watches all the way through to uh, mechanical watches and we've repaired things from the 1800s up until now. On his Instagram account, Damon posted a photo of one of his sculptures featuring pieces of quartz. And he wrote about how when he was a kid, he asked his father what quartz was. His dad said that the battery in a watch runs on quartz. Damon writes, Now, looking at these, I think of the energy of the stones both as a metaphor for the energy given to me by the world, but also the energy I give to it. As I read this, I realized I have no idea how a quartz watch works. So quartz watches mean that they run off of a battery instead of your kinetic movement or having to wind the watch. There is a tiny piece of quartz in the movement and that quartz vibrates at a certain consistency and it allows the watch to keep regular time as opposed to mechanical watch where it could lose a little bit of time as the day goes on. So maybe we better start with a mechanical watch so that I understand how a watch keeps time. Like how does a watch work? So there is a mainspring in the watch and uh, the crown, which is on the side of your watch or mechanical watch, you have to wind that and it's going to tighten the mainspring and that will make everything else move within it. There's a bunch of little gears in there that have teeth that go together. And then also in mechanical watches, there are jewels in them. And these jewels can be uh, rubies typically. And that just keeps friction from uh, wearing the metal down. And it holds the, the oils and stuff that are in there also. So the energy that is making the gears turn is from this tightly wound spring that you are physically winding with the knob. And then as that spring releases slowly throughout the day, that is what's providing the energy for the gears to turn? That's correct, yes. Okay, and then and then the rubies that... So we're talking like literal jewels in your average watch. Yeah, literal jewels. And- They're super tiny, <laughs> like smaller than a a pen tip. Okay, I see. And so those are acting as like tiny ball bearings? So they um, keep friction from happening. So because you have so many pieces of metal that are turning within things. So these jewels are highly polished and the metal parts that go into them that are near them are going to be, you know, rubbing up against that. So this keeps you from rubbing metal against metal. You're rubbing metal against the ruby, which won't wear away. So a quartz powered watch is basically a watch with a battery in it. So instead of turning the tiny knob, you just have to like pop a battery in and that is what gets the gears to turn? Correct, yeah. The reason they did this is because people didn't want to have to spend the time uh, winding their watches up. And with mechanical watches, you also have to have those serviced every, you know, five to ten years so that they continue to run properly because they have to be re-oiled and cleaned up um, just like a car does. This does get a little bit expensive sometimes. So the courts came in and it took away all of that maintenance that needed to happen. Can you help me understand how the quartz interacts with the battery or like what function the quartz plays? The electricity, you know, that's going through from the battery into the watch and making it run, the quartz is going to be vibrating. It takes that electricity and it vibrates. And that is what continues to allow it to run at a consistent time. Why did they call them quartz watches instead of battery watches? Mechanical and automatic watches, they're going to be um, shown at, advertised as having like 17 jewels or 24 jewels or however many jewels um, in there. So, you know, putting quartz in there, 
you know, it sounds better than having a battery. So this is just marketing. This is like a battery-powered watch. Kind of sounds like down market, but a quartz-powered watch. That sounds so fancy. It sounds a bit better, yeah. And just practically speaking, like, how did you cast your own head, and what was that process like? What did it feel like for you? It was great for for the most part. It was it was labor intensive, but looking back, it was great. I went. I had an artist residency at a college, Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, and I came in and I explained to them. Initially, I wanted to make a full body candle of a woman sitting there, and I wanted to sit out in the sun. And that was about the parallels between how we treat the environment and how we treat women or feminine people extraction, never putting back in what you get out, you know, and that's a cultural norm. That ain't just men and women, that's society, how society views women. But that's also how we talk about the environment, Mother Earth. And back to what I was going through with my mom, and I started to think about what I could have did differently and how I could have showed my appreciation more. And so that's how that initially led me to. But then I was like, I'm not going to ask nobody to sit here. I don't even know how long it'll take, two, three hours, while people put stuff all over them, and, and, and if I can't do it. So I say, do it to me first. Um, and, so, and so that's what happened. We, we got um, some of the people from the museum. We got some students and they covered my head in this goop. You know what I'm saying? And uh, this cast. And um, there I was. And then I, then I started to say, well, again, like instead of talking about from a point of view of my mom or femininity, let's talk about me and what role I play. You know, and so that's the evolution from the initial idea into cracks and what you see cracks and seeing it being me and my personal, my actual face and me talking about the story from my point of view, what grief is from my point of view. Wow. That is such a personal evolution, like from coming in with this pretty conceptual and like, you know, heady political idea to being like, you know what, like, let's, it's me. <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk yeah. about me and, and my role in, you know, the patriarchy or masculinity yeah. or, you know, my grief, my face. Yeah. And we all play a, a role in, in, you know, like, just because I, I was born into the body that says I have a seat and power, or I was born into the body that says I'm in the cast that doesn't have the power. What are we talking about? Race, sex, sexual orientation. Everybody's being told the same thing about whatever, you know, box you fit into. Everybody's being victimized by these systems, no matter if you get it worse than the next person. But it, it ain't helping nobody a lot of times, you know, and these boundaries are fictitious. But when I was thinking about patriarchy or masculinity or whatever, like I'm trying to talk through it from a point of view of how it is a cage to a lot of us that we can't be. You know, you just can't be all the way yourself because you're worried about looking weak or you're worried about. And, and, and if you look weak because of the world we in, you get attacked. And that's a real thing. You know, that's not made up. And we all in a social contract that says that's the way it should go. If the idea is that, oh, men are powerful because they're strong, therefore you as a man have to be strong and you can't show any weakness. Otherwise, like everything crumbles, everything that society is predicated on crumbles, right? Mm-hmm. I think that it's, uh, it's an ever-changing dynamic, but I know from the time that I was born and the men that I grew up around, if there was an emotion, it was anger. That's what they was comfortable in. If you're happy, you're mad. you sad, you're mad. Because that's aggression. And that means won't nobody come harm you. Right. So you learn to you learn to replace all of the other shit with that. Um, and that ain't healthy because that's how you get addictions. That's how you get high blood pressure. That's how you have heart attacks, bottling all of that shit up or only having one speed. 
For his crack series, Damon pulls inspiration from kintsugi, the ancient Japanese art of repairing broken ceramics using gold lacquer. With kintsugi, the idea of breaking something, and then because you love it so much, you don't throw it out, you mend it. And you mend it with something beautiful, and you put, you put gold and you adorn it. I think that everybody got scars, and everybody's been broken apart in some way, and they have to put themselves back together. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what I was going with, using that ancient art. And I hope I'm adding to the conversation around something that's much older than me. And part of the idea with Kintsuki, right, is that you are showing the cracks. Like, you're not covering them up. You're not trying to make it look brand new. Yeah, you're, like, celebrating, like, this broke and it's whole again, but it's never going to be the same as it was before, which, I mean, I remember when I lost my dad that there was kind of this feeling of, like, oh, like, you know, when is grief over? Or like, when do I go back to normal or the way it was before? And it's like, you, you're never going to be the same person you were before. And trying to pretend that you are or like hide those scars is not only fruitless, but like probably pretty unhealthy. Yeah. Kintsugi intersects with the Japanese idea of wabi-sabi, of finding beauty in the imperfect or incomplete. The first known examples of Japanese ceramics being repaired with gold lacquer date back to the 15th century. But by the 17th century, there was allegedly a Japanese warrior who purchased tea bowls, broke them, had them repaired, and sold them at a profit. It's like how designers tricked me into paying extra for the holes in my jeans. Kintsugi also finds its way into the work of contemporary artists like Damon or Victor Solomon, an artist whose literally bawling project recontextualizes the iconography of basketball. Think stained glass backboards or a basketball net slash chandelier made of crystals. In a recent project called Kintsugi Court, Solomon and his team descended on a public basketball court in South Los Angeles, overgrown with weeds. They cleaned the court, clearing the cracks of dirt and plants, and then they filled those cracks with gold. Would you tell me a little bit about your mom? Like, what was she like? My mom, she worked at a church my whole life. She was an accountant, but she chose to do that for the church. She was a devout believer. She did what she had to do to take care of all of us. She was a super kind, sweet person. And in some regards, that might have been to her disadvantage with, with the way that people take advantage of sweet people. She was a light. She was a light. You know, like there's certain people you meet that they light around um, in a situation. They brighten up the world. And that's a good thing, but also the light draws moths. The light draws other things that want to get warm. And so I think in certain regards, that's also dangerous. But I, I do know that she was a beautiful light for me and my brothers and sisters and anybody that knew her. What do you think she would think about your crack series? <laughs> I honestly don't know. Uh, you know, also my family is regular black working class folks. So, so just me being able to do this for a career is unheard of. You know what I mean? So I think that um, <laughs> she was happy I wasn't in the street. I wasn't in jail. She was happy that what I had been doing my entire life became something that could take care of me. So I do. I think she would be proud of that. But it ain't like, I don't think she would be swooning over it because that ain't what she did. That ain't how she acted with me. So I think she would be proud. 
Well, I think her being proud of you for being a good person, that probably carries a lot more weight than like, I'm proud of you for having a solo exhibition at Mass Mocha. Yeah, I totally, <laughs> I totally agree with you. I totally agree. <laughs> In addition to Damon's show at the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit, he also has a show opening at the Betty Ono Gallery in Oakland called Darker Gods at the Lake of Dreams. Darker Gods, which is a much a bigger super structural story, like a, like a mythology that I've been building, a world almost, like a universe I've been building out. It's about taking different aspects of Black culture and Black tropes and turning them into deities, like gods, like polytheistic religions all over the world have been doing forever. And it's, in a way, it's, a, it's about narrative therapy and just changing the way we look at ourselves and our relationship to power, myths, and identity when we're talking about Black people. If you go to darkergods.com, you can see this entire world that Damon has built using photography, poetry, narrative prose, music, film, dance, and animation. What you're hearing right now is a song from a conceptual album of music that Damon released as part of the Darker Gods body of work. In his pantheon of gods, there is the Megadonna, mother of all, who lit the universe with the power of a thousand suns blaring from her eyes. There's Dion, the Keeper of Time, tattooed and dreadlocked, who remembers the stories of his siblings, the gods. Andre the Tender is the god of vulnerability and masculinity, the guardian of both the weak and the powerful. So each one is using myth, parables, stories like that, to tell stories about um, who we are as, uh, collectively or what we, what we could be. And just trying to explain the universe from the point of view or if the people I grew up had a choice about what God they worship or, you know, what God would this particular person that I grew up with have? What does it look like to, to deify black people, black culture, what they're going through? Um, and not on like all knowing, all loving, you know, not that, not, not so much the monotheistic way, but what do religions do in West Africa, in Asia? Hindu gods, uh, uh, Yoruba gods, even the Greeks and the Romans, everybody at one point, the way they explained the, the world was through gods and the gods looked very human. They made mistakes. The only difference was like they were all powerful. And, and that made more sense. And how random the universe works, it makes more sense to explain the beings that are over it in that regard. And it also is a much more communal aspect. You see, like in, in many of these religions, there's a guy for water. The guy for 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 for, for light, there's a, but just like there's a blacksmith in the village, and there's a teacher, and there's a caretaker, and there are doctors. Like each person has a specific role, so it just may, you know, it just seems logical the way that a lot of these religions came to be, and and so I wanted to take some of that and create my own. And I'm just always been about myths and superheroes and the supernatural and how those things and the way that those stories lay out speak to who we are intrinsically as human beings. It's amazing how adaptable humans are. Like in February of 2020, I was someone who traveled all the time and went out to eat at restaurants and had a robust community of friends whom I saw frequently. And then I lost all that, like 
overnight. Or like how one day I was a person who had a dad who was alive, and then the next day I didn't. Living seems like a continual act of losing, of people, of relationships, of who you were yesterday. And the more I do it, both living and losing, the more it feels impossible to assign a value judgment to it. We can grieve a loss and feel deep, deep sadness, but those losses make us who we are. So we might as well acknowledge those missing pieces, those cracks. Damon Davis's show, Filling in the Cracks, runs from now until August 8th at Mocha Detroit. His show, Darker Gods at the Lake of Dreams, opens on Juneteenth at the Betty Ono Gallery in Oakland and runs through August 13th. 